Welcome to the Humans of Hospitality podcast. I know so many of you listening to this show love your local bar, your local restaurant, maybe your local hotel, and have so many fond memories of time in hospitality businesses. This is the podcast where we get to chat to the human beings behind the scenes of that industry. Maybe the chefs or the bakers or the coffee roasters or the gin distillers or the craft brewers or the entrepreneurs, but all doing an amazing job of making sure that hospitality stays interesting and the big dull formulaic brands do not take over our high street please enjoy the show in this week's episode i am chatting to kirsty loveday from love drinks now it's worth noting we had a smidgen of a sound issue in this recording so we're not quite where i like to be from an audio perspective but i think it's still pretty reasonable and well worth bearing with us because kirsty shares my passion for the stories behind our industry and it's become the very reason for her business too If you're in hospitality, you can find yourself living a contradiction. You work antisocial hours so your customers can relax during their time off. But because you're on duty in the evening and at weekends, you never really get time off yourself. So as someone who started her career handing out free beer to club and pub goers, Kirsty Loveday knows this only too well, which is why her award-winning business, Love Drinks, has two clear strands to it. First, to share these amazing stories behind the spirits portfolio she's been building up since 2007. Whether it's an organic cachaça or a cold brew coffee cut with wheat vodka, all of the independent brands distributed by Love Drinks are created with dedication and craftsmanship. And they all feed into Kirsty's philosophy of drinking less, but drinking better. The second, Love Well, goes back to when Kirsty was in her early 20s. The late nights and long hours triggered a series of panic attacks and a realisation that she had to look after herself. As you'll hear, she's applied the look after your well-being principle to the whole of her team and to bartenders in general. No wonder Kirsty's been given a British Empire Medal for services to the drinks industry. I very much hope you enjoy this week's conversation. Kirsty, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast this week. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Where are we on planet Earth, Kirsty? We are in the beautiful Clapham Common in South London. So um, I actually used to, to live here for 15 years, and that's why the office is, is here. But we are very close to the Common, which is great for the two dogs as well. Yeah, Sleeping next door. Who, uh, yeah, they're having a little snooze. Yeah. And uh, not too far, I used to live very close to here, actually, once upon a time. And it's a beautiful sunny day. So thanks for giving me an excuse uh, to come back to the city. So um, we're going to go on a little bit of a journey and chat very much about sort of, you know, what you do now. But I want to start a little bit earlier can you just explain uh, how did you get into hospitality what's your first memories of this industry oh my goodness me my first memories of the hospitality industry my parents actually had a pub and a restaurant by default my dad was an electrician he lost his business and they ended up having this pub um, so I was very much kind of pot washing from an early age wow. where was this this was up in Leeds okay. so yes a Yorkshire man, a Yorkshire girl. Um, so um, yes, they had this this pub and this restaurant. So I used to pot wash. I used to, um, you know, wait on tables, work behind the bar when I was old enough. 
Um, it wasn't a particularly um, salubrious um, venue at all, so it was pretty pretty basic. Um, but they they tried to do this quite nice restaurant in which was, in essence, a pretty shitty area. So um, dealing with like really interesting customers. Um, you know, conflict resolution, all of that. Wow. Um, okay. So really good to kind of set me up for for a, for a sales well. Like, yeah, for like, for a life in business. So it was yeah. a tough tough industry, presumably. It was. Uh, yeah, the, it was the, really the pub trade because it was a recession at the time. I think, yeah, right? absolutely. And um, the whole family used to kind of go in and work there on Mother's Day, Father's Day, Christmas, and things like that. And we used to absolutely hate it, you know. You? But I look back now, and it's given me such a good grounding. Yeah. Um, you know, my CV was was very very long. At 18, um, and it gave me lots and lots of opportunities, and really gave me a real passion for, you know, people and the industry, really. So that's where it all started. Yeah. So was there some good stuff that you think you you picked up at that time? Any little yeah, little nuggets that ended up? Yeah, I mean, my dad is a proper entrepreneur, and I remember one um, scenario when he had developed this loyalty card for this restaurant, which was called the Wayhouse Restaurant. So it was very much ahead of its time. You know, it was like a you, you pay up front for this card and then as you come in and have a, had a meal, you'd get a discount and you'd collect your points. And he's like, right, we need to go and sell some of these cards to the local neighbourhoods. And as I say, it wasn't a salubrious neighbourhood at all. And literally going to what was in essence a council estate and kind of kicking me out of the door of the car, going off you go. So I was probably like not even 14 wow. at this age. So going out there on the coal face, you know, selling door to door. And I mean, I was absolutely petrified, you know, walking up a, a gate, knocking on a door to a stranger as a young girl, you know, somebody answering the door. They were always quite rude to you, but it gives you real resilience to just kind of keep going. You know, I didn't want to let my family down. Um, I liked the challenge. And, you know, one in a hundred, you might actually sell. I was going to say, did you sell any? You did? Yeah. 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 Oh, absolutely. People yeah. couldn't not, say no. Not loads, not loads. Um, but having that experience when you're so young just really, really sets you up. Um, because although, yes, I'm in the booze industry now, really it's it's sales, it's getting on with people. And, and it, it's such a skill and it's taken me a long time to realise that it is actually kind of an inherent skill. Um, and I'm, I'm really, really glad that I've got it. But when I was at university, I, I took a, a, a job selling computer software over the phones. And um, it gave me such confidence because even though I was absolutely breaking it on the phone, just speaking to somebody, just getting that rapport. And I was a top salesperson. And that's when I really got my competitive edge. You know, at school, I always tried hard. You know, Kirsty tried hard, never the top of the class. but. When I started to work and started to see that actually by being nice to people and building a rapport and a relationship with them, you can kind of get what you want out of people, not in a, a bad way. I mean, I was selling quite, you know, dodgy computer software back then. I don't know how much value it was bringing to people's lives, but... I enjoyed being the top of the leaderboard. Yeah, nice. And that led then, so straight after uni, what was your first job? Because that was sales related, I think, wasn't it? So I went to work for Budweiser. I had a friend who worked there and um, I was literally giving out free beer, wearing a branded t-shirt, you know, to people. Living the dream. Can't, can't do that now. You cannot give out free drinks, free alcohol to people. Um, but the environment there was, you know, you were working late nights, um, literally, you know, a young girl thrown into a pub full of, a lot of men giving out free beer. So you imagine you were quite popular. 
<laughs> quite popular, yeah, especially when people have had a few drinks and they, they really weren't fussy, but, you know, negotiating, navigating kind of around those situations was, was quite good fun. Um, and then I went to work for a company called Allied Demag, um, who looked after big brands like Malibu and Tia Maria. Um, and I actually went to work in their marketing department because I was quite intrigued by how brands were really positioning themselves um, with consumers. Um, so I got a little, little bit of experience there, um, but really found my passion in, in the sales side. Um, so I did a sideways step and Allied Demag had some brands like Maker's Mark, so that was really quite premium family-owned brand and I really enjoyed telling the story to the bars and restaurants um, setting my own journey plan and setting my own targets kind of deciding which brands I wanted to sell um, and just really seeing the response that I was having from people I'm generally quite an enthusiastic person uh, but telling a story you know behind the brand and seeing the response um, and really you know talking to the on-trade accounts about how this can give them a point of difference from their competition down the road as well and, and just driving change in the industry and making it that, that bit better. So um, that telling the stories aspect, which we're going to probably you know, spend a little bit of time on because there's some amazing stories yeah. behind so many of your brands. Yeah. Was that something you were trained to do or is that something when you just realised that, that that was what selling? Because a lot of people hate selling, but the bit you like about it, I think, is, is those stories. So where did that, was that just a kind of a, a natural knowledge? Or? Absolutely. It's all about meeting the people. So I think I really kind of honed my kind of technique, uh, so to speak, when I moved from Allied Demac to launch Gosling's Rum. And meeting the Goslings family, I mean, they are just so kind and so generous and their story is so amazing. Um, and they tell it so beautifully and it is a really, really genuine story of a British family that lived in uh, the south of England that had a beers, wines and spirits store in 1806. Wow. And they packed their um, boat full of £10,000 equivalent um, you know, stock to go to America and their sea charter ran out to their license to sail on, sail on the seas. So they um, stopped in Bermuda. What a nice place to stop. And there was literally nobody there. Um, just the, um, the British Navy were there. So they had this boat that just rocked up with all this beers, wines and spirits. And the, um, you know, the British Navy were there and they were like, well, we'll buy it. So they started trading and, and never left. Um, Bermuda doesn't grow sugarcane, um, it grows, uh, it has kind of herbs and spices and ginger um, and that's where the dark and stormy cocktail came from because they were started to blend their rums um, with a local ginger beer which was slightly alcoholic then. They mix it together, it was quite cloudy and dirty, um, this concoction and they said that looks like the, the colour of a cloud that a mad sailor would dare sail under. So it was just and it was a genuine, authentic story. Um, you can tell it to bartenders, bartenders can share it with consumers. But fundamentally, it's this family, you know, they're eighth generation now. Um, kind of, we work with their kind of their children and their nieces just come over and spent a year with us being a brand ambassador. And we've got such a strong relationship with them. And you just want their brand to go out and do well because it's authentic. And it's not a faceless big brand lining some greedy shareholders' pockets. Yeah. And, and and telling that story worked then. So, so back then, this wasn't when it was Love Drinks. This is pre-Love Drinks, isn't this it? But you pre- were going into the bar. What was yeah. it? How were you getting that story out there? Because it wasn't a known product at that time. No, it? absolutely not. So uh, 
I very much focused on high-end premium bars because this was a more expensive product. So you're really kind of pushing a, a whole movement of people moving from something more mainstream like Captain Morgan's and saying, look, have this product because yes, of course it tastes better, but this is the story behind it. And consumers were definitely engaging with it. So um, I used to spend a lot of time doing trainings. Um, I just remember spending about three months literally driving up and down, doing all the revolution vodka bars because um, trying to convince them that you know vodka was not the thing actually it was rum um, and doing lots of trainings telling the story and just having a huge amount of engagement with bartenders who were really hungry for knowledge back then the, the products on the back bar were really mainstream and quite dull a, a whole kind of back bar maybe had 16 products on there one vodka one gin one rum so it was very much the start of you know this kind of craft revolution that we are very much in at the moment so yeah. yeah i think it's key isn't it is to convince the bartenders i get a number of people that approach me with products and, I, and and apart from me just having a general interest you know i think yeah get get the bartenders on board almost before the consumers isn't it how much of it was was getting the consumers to ask for it and how much was getting the bartenders to recommend it that has changed a lot recently but back then the bartenders were absolutely um you know they were kind of driving the change and the, the patterns and the trends um, they were very closely linked with bartenders in America. So, um, you know, this was kind of even before social media, British bartenders that were really kind of passionate about their trade. They were regularly going over to America and kind of seeing what was happening there. Um, and it was talking to these, you know, these bartenders that were really kind of going out there seeking what was going on in the world that really helped me. Um, you know, uh, kind of pull together the portfolio when I did eventually um, set up Love Drinks. Yeah, so we'll talk about that. So 2007, you were happy fundamentally what doing what you were doing. What was the trigger that made you uh, go off on your own? I absolutely lived and breathed Gosling's Rum. You know, it was literally coming out of every pore in my body. I just, um, you know, I'd got recognised through that role. Um, I'd won a brand ambassador award. It was just like one of the proudest moments, even to today, because I really wasn't expecting it. Uh, being a female in a, a quite a male environment helped me to stand out. I always think that's quite a positive thing, yeah. Um, but the, the company changed um, setup, so they appointed a distributor in the UK market. So they made me redundant from my role, but asked me to go with a distributor. Their business model was not very sound. Uh, they made me redundant and um, after being made redundant pretty much twice in, in three months, I was like, I don't want anybody taking control of my career. Um, but I also thought, there's not enough interesting brands here in this market. You know, why isn't anybody bringing them in? Where are they all? You know, there's, there's got to be more goslings out there. So um, it was, yeah, 2007, and it was just when was the Lehman Bank went bust. And I was, um, I found this, vodka from San Francisco. It was the most expensive vodka on the market, pretty much. Um, instead of finding maybe a locally made product, you know, in Suffolk and distributing that, I went to the other side of the world, pretty much, and, and found this fantastic um, vodka with a really interesting story. Uh, we don't have it anymore, unfortunately. That's a, a whole different story. Um, just this amazing, amazing story. It brought it back to the UK. I remortgaged my house. Spent it on a pallet of vodka, you know, as you do. Wow, yeah, there's a, a gamble. Bond. I know, yeah. coming into the bond and it had the label on and the address and I just went to the warehouse to 
take a photo of this palette of vodka and stay proud. So that's that's very different then from going from a sales role to becoming a kind of you know global distributor of uh, of brands. That that was it was it a massive leap and what did what did that feel like and what did you learn in those first six months? Ignorance is bliss. If I would have known then what I knew now, I would never have set the business up. So thank God, ignorance is bliss. It's true. I just went out there thinking I could get my nice product and put it in the bag and pull it along the streets of London and speak to the bartenders and speak to the buyers of Harvey Nichols and Waitrose and build these brands. I was so ignorant. Um, I mean, the, the basic logistics I had to figure out. So I'm like, hmm, bottle from San Francisco to the UK, shipping, you know, invoicing, duty bonded warehouse. Um, so just I just had to figure it all out as I was going along. Um, but then also doing the, the bit that I found very easy was the sales side of it, really, really focusing on that, doing the basics of the back office, you know, the real basics of the back office. And I, I struggled along. I struggled on, on my own for probably like two, two to three years, then got a part-time bookkeeper. He was operating out of my little flat down the road here in Clapham, a basement flat, yeah. So we were there for about five years. Wow. Because um, what had you started at uni? Had you done business before? No, not no? at all. I wish I would have done. Yeah. I always say that to, when I speak to any young people, I'm like, do business, you know, regardless of what you're going to do, what you think you might do later, it's probably going to end up being sales or marketing. So, you know, basic marketing, basic sales will, will always set you up. So absolutely not. And I think as I've progressed, I have realised that my talents definitely lie in being a visionary entrepreneur, not a CEO, which I apparently am at the moment, which is all about systems and process. Um, but setting up a business, you know, you learn so much about yourself. Um, and it's really, really easy to forget about your strengths and just really, really focus on those things that you really, really struggle with, of which there have been so many, overwhelmingly so. Yeah, what sort of things? Oh, HR, you know, recruiting people. I think everybody thinks like me. I still kind of secretly do now because I think, you know, I've, I've got a good heart, I've got good intentions, I've got a good attitude, I've got a great work ethic. And I think everybody else is like that. I think they must be underneath, they must be. And they're not. And it's, you know, it's really ignorant, ignorant of me to think that. Um, but when you're under such an enormous amount of pressure and stress, you just take a deep breath, you put your head above the water, you quickly look around and you grab the nearest person. And then you spend two years regretting it. It's or true. just hoping, just hoping yeah. that actually that person is doing those things and it is working out. Um, I mean, I've been in situations where I've recruited a, a finance person and she phoned me up on the morning that she was supposed to be starting and say, I've decided I'm not gonna take the job. The bus journey is too long. Wow. So I've got a day of meetings and then I have to like try and do my invoicing and do the orders and still do the meetings. And it was just, it, it absolutely crippled me. Mm. You know, it gave me a lifelong health condition. Um, so that, yeah, that was really difficult, really difficult. Have you got better at that? Recruitment? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting, it comes off a lot. I've got some fabulous people around me and um, attitude is the most important thing. Um, it's recognising where you're good and when you're, where you're not so good and making sure that you surround yourself with some good people. But, you know, if, you, if you're a kind person, um, for me it's really important that I have good 
uh, people, loyal people with a good work ethic around me. That's the most important thing. Yeah. Everything else, I think, can be learned. Yeah. Definitely. So you, you mentioned the level of stress that you were under and was a lot of that, you know, had you burnt your boat? You, you said about remortgaging. Was, was, it, was it because you were under so much financial pressure or was this just your high expectation on yourself? I thought I was under financial pressure, but it was never clear because I never had a good enough finance person in my business to be able to say, oh, actually, you know, this is where you are. So you're constantly in fear, I was constantly in fear of losing everything. There's these stats saying that like 90% of businesses fail in the first 12 months and then 70% in three years. I was like, that's never gonna happen to me, never, never. Um, and back then, in the size of the business it was, you can make such an impact. You just work, you just keep going. You do your sales calls during the day. You do your invoicing in the evening. You sleep very little. You do your tastings at Harvey Nichols on a weekend. And that is what my life was like for about four years. Um, I squeezed a little bit of exercise in because that's the only way that I could just decompress. Um, and that has been my saviour, really. Um, over the years, definitely kind of exercise, just finding a a way to release, yeah. um, but managing stress levels is, you know, it's it's still a challenge for me today. So it wasn't necessarily um, financial, it was just expectation. I'm a people pleaser, which is, I'm proud to be a people pleaser. It's, it's the industry we're in, I think, I isn't like it? Food, it. booze, sleep yes. and hospitality. Exactly. That's what we're uh, that's what we're on earth to do, I exactly. think. But it's not the easiest thing, is it? It's not people the easiest are, thing. People are bonkers. No, so when, when you when bonkers. you look back on that, and I'm going to come very shortly into into what Love Drink sort of turned into. But when you look back on those uh, on those early days, is there anything you'd wish you'd known then from the start that oh, you know what now? There's kind of probably about ten or twelve kind of key principles of things that I just. I kind of knew and I should have stood firm with them or things that I wish I would have known earlier. I think I found it very difficult to let my guard down, to let external people help me. I felt that I should be able to do everything and know everything myself. I don't know if it's a lack of trust because I like to think I'm quite a trusting person. I don't know, maybe I kind of got that from my dad. Sorry, dad, if you listen to this, but... Um, you know, just trusting like other organisations, PR organisations or consultancies or things like that. I think I heard a lot of bad stories from people shelling out quite a lot of money and not really seeing the return. Um, so that for one, definitely. And also really going with your gut. It's such an obvious thing. But I have a technique now where I can literally put my hand on my shoulder and put my hand on my stomach with a hand on my stomach. And I can think, who's talking? And it, I can figure it out now. And I look at all the decisions that I've made that have gone wrong. And it's been this little gnat on my shoulder. Have you, have you read The Chimp Paradox? Yes, love it. Mm. Love okay. it. Yeah, just oh, as you were saying that, I was yeah. thinking, yeah, is it, is it the chimp or is it you that's exactly. talking? Exactly. So, oh, God, so yeah. you do that consciously, do you? Exercising your chimp. Yeah, yeah don't get me on that one. <laughs> I'm forever exercising my chimp in the wrong, yeah. In the wrong field, <laughs> in public. Anybody who's not read that book now is going, "What are it they is, talking about?" But go and read the Chim Paradox or listen really to good. it on audiobooks. Yeah. It's a great, it's it's a great insight. So, okay, you said you had twelve, and you've only given two. I feel I should at least get you to do with another couple. Oh, Anything else so looking back, where you think, "God, I wish I'd known that." You know what? It's your values. Never, never move away from the most important thing, which is values. Um, and I used to think that my most important value was kind of like this, like work ethic. Um, but actually it's loyalty, loyalty for me personally. I mean, people will 
you know, see loyalty in, in, in different ways. But for me, you know, the right person and being loyal and, and sticking by what they said they were going to do and standing by me. And I have some amazing loyal people here. So really understand the things that are really, really important to you. It's almost like you need a tick list of questions to ask yourself before you embark on being an entrepreneur. And it's also about understanding the roles and responsibilities that are going to be forced upon you over the next few years and thinking do you know what how am I going to feel in that situation because in hindsight if I look back and if I was kinder to myself and not the sort of person that likes to self-flagellate and will do anything if it's a challenge I'd probably look at the business model that I'm in at the moment and think that probably doesn't sit that well with me being such a people pleaser you know with 11 brand owners 13 members of my team, how can you keep all of those people happy? You can't, it's impossible. But I need to, every morning that I wake up, I want all of my team to be incredibly happy and I want all of my brand owners to feel incredibly proud and happy and supported. Well, that brings us back to the story. So you end up with a couple of uh, products, but what, what was the idea originally for Love Drinks? Then? So it was about pulling together a portfolio of brands that would really appeal to the bartender. Um, the bartender was very much, um, you know, uh, driving the trends in the bars and restaurants. Consumers were very much listening to what they were suggesting. It's not like, you know, the big leap over to social media now and a lot of people kind of see it on social media and they, that's the trend. Um, so we really wanted to pull together, I say, I, I use the term we, royal we, it was just me, um, pull together a portfolio of brands that were non-conflicting, so one or maximum two in each category, um, that would really um, appeal to the same customer base. The customers being places like, you know, from a retail perspective, Harvey Nichols, um, but from a bar perspective, in more, the more bespoke places, the Ritzes of the world, absolutely, and some of the more kind of contemporary, um, like Drake and Morgan and things like that. So it was about pulling together a great portfolio. Um, liquid was number one. Um, and it has actually changed now how we decide on our brands, but back then it was all about liquid. And then it was story. And then the people, and then the commercials. Um, by liquid, you mean how it how it tastes, or you just mean it has to be liquid? <laughs> all about the liquid. Right. All about the quality. The quality. Of the liquid, yeah. yeah, and how it's made. Um, you know, properly distilled the you know good natural ingredients and care and attention. Why, so, why was that important to you? Because it's it's part of the story, and you can taste it at the end of the day. You can't make you know a quick cheap gin and it tastes good. You know something that is really laboured over. So amazing. you only ever wanted to be in the quality end of the market? Absolutely, yeah. Why? Less cases. This, the story and the people behind it, you know, it's, it's and also pushing um, new trends, um, driving the industry forwards. It's never been a, a, a stack it high, sell it cheap. Don't get me wrong, we still enjoy selling thousands of cases, but we all want to know that we're selling thousands of cases in a category that's pushing the boundaries that's encouraging consumers to pay two, three, four, five pounds more a bottle or a cocktail, depending on where you're drinking. And ultimately it's about drinking better, but probably a little bit less as well. 
that's where the market's going. So uh, lots of people have very much jumped onto that, drink less but better, but we were saying this 13 years ago. Yeah, and, and it, it, it definitely seems to be a thing uh, with the younger markets and certainly noticing that, noticing that in the bars. I think the older uh, clientele, I guess, you know, have come from a culture and a history of of drinking a lot, which started yeah. in the in the British pubs and, and pints of yeah. beer, and it does seem to have become... Uh, yeah, much more finessed, I suppose. And maybe it's expensive and maybe that's health-related, I don't know. I think uh, it is, isn't it, health-related? Yeah, the young people of today are not going out and getting drunk like mm. we probably did. Yeah, I age. guess more... They're not having sex either, yeah. they? <laughs> really? The two go hand in hand. Okay, somebody <laughs> must still be. There's still plenty of kids around, so they must. Yeah, I think it must still happen a little bit. But, um, <laughs> you mentioned about only having one or two brands in each category. Yes. Has that not become increasingly challenging? Because whereas before finding one product, one niche that you really fell in love with, there seems to be quite a lot. I mean, gin's a prime example now, oh, and there's just hundreds. Yeah. But a number of them actually do have a, a credible kind of history. I suppose we're getting back to that point where there used to be a coffee roaster in every town and a gin distiller yeah. in every town. How on earth, when there's if, if, I, when there's a very limited amount of quality, it's probably an easy decision. But if there's yeah. more craft producers now, has that become more challenging? And there are many more craft producers now. Um, so when we set up 13 years ago, we were one of very few small distributors. There's probably about 10 others, and they've all got many brands in their portfolio. The floodgates really have opened. So it was very much kind of one product in each category and finding absolutely the best. So whether it's like the only organic cachaça, um, or for El Dorado, one of the runs that we have in our portfolio, it's made with the world's only pot stills. Um, so we want to find the best product in that category. Um, rum, we have got two because they're both so different. So Gosling's is like the family history. It's a bit more of a fun brand. Um, and then we've got El Dorado, which is like super, super serious. They've got one 25-year-old um, in there. Well, they've got a 50-year-old actually, but the 25-year-old, it's um, like two and a half thousand pounds a bottle. Um, but there are there's a are lot we trying that I said there's quite a lot of booze on the table and we tasting it it's next door yeah. is it that's locked got... away from the dogs yeah. <laughs> next door try that later yeah, okay. absolutely <laughs> um, so it's there's a lot more choice out there but you've really got to drill down and find you know the brands that have got the really authentic story okay. there's lots of brands that can just create something now um, and they can kind of backfill a story but us we need that authenticity do you ever get to the point where it's a draw and you can't decide? Or is it is there generally a clear winner in any category? There's always a clear winner. Really? Um, yeah, there's always a clear winner. Yeah, for us. Um, and also, it's, you know, I, I said earlier that we would always look at the liquid first and like blind taste it. Mm. Now we just go straight for the people. Who is the person behind that brand? What's motivated them to do it? And why? What are their values? Yeah. So you, you, you alluded to this earlier, but there's been a bit of a flip then to it being consumer kind of pressure to have brands more than directly the bar staff. Is that correct? That's absolutely right. And that's been a real struggle um, for us as a company. And I think for me personally, um, we really don't deal with fat brands. We're not interested in these brands that are just here today, gone tomorrow. So, for example, spiced rums become really popular there's no way on this earth while I'm breathing am I going to encourage Gosling's or El Dorado to put spices in their amazing rum it's never going to happen it doesn't need to happen and the other thing is we like to market our brands at a slightly older demographic when I say older demographic I mean not the 18 to 25 year olds so 25 to 40 
Um, and, you know, you tend to find that they, they are still kind of brand loyal and seeking out those, um, seeking out those interesting stories. Um, I mean, the whole pink gin. Oh, my God. Go on, have a rant. It's OK. We'll let you. <laughs> pink gin. OK. So, I mean, Instagram, God bless it, has been, you know, the reason that pink gin has got so popular. Obviously, it looks great. But pink gin was actually a cocktail. It was actually Plymouth gin with bitters added to it. Um, and it was, it was just a type of cocktail. We actually do a proper pink gin by The Bitter Truth that has bitters added to it because The Bitter Truth is a, a, a range of bitters. And they said, great, let's dig into the history um, and let's recreate a gin with our bitters in and call it a proper pink gin. So it's not sweetened, it hasn't got any sugar in, it's just fabulous gin and bitters. Um, but what you've got now is consumers jumping on this pink gin. And there was an article that I read the other day, I think it was in the Telegraph, just saying that some of these pink gins have got like 15 um, teaspoons of sugar in a bottle. It's ridiculous. Um, I think a lot of people have moved into white spirits. It can be for health reasons. And therefore, consumers are being duped, really, by drinking what they think is, like, really healthy pink gin that's got, like, you know, honey and rhubarb in it. Um, and it's just packed full of sugar and artificial kind of flavours, just masking what could be a really, really good gin underneath. Um, so we don't like pink gin. Um, we like proper pink gin, the bit of truth pink gin, but this whole craze... And what you've also got is the big brands that are jumping on the craft revolution. So it used to be families, family stories, and now big brands have gone, we want a bit of that, we're going to fight for our market share. So they're either buying up small brands, which is great for the small brands if they want to be bought, or they're trying to create their own. Um, I mean, Beef Eater have just jumped on the pink bandwagon, um, and Gordon's, you know, and that is where the growth of gin is coming from. It's actually consumers coming into a pink category. So they might have been a rosé wine drinker. So it's so interesting how quickly trends are moving, where people are moving from, you know, before when you're marketing a brand, you'd have a real clear direction of where your consumer is going to come from. And now it's actually a colour, not a category. People drinking pink gin, you might have been drinking Ribena. <laughs> Ribena's a rosé, the pink gin. What would you like to drink? I'll have something pink, please. So it is crazy. I mean, it's interesting. It's kind of like, it can be a bit like unnerving because some of the kind of classic ways that we market our brands, which are through stories and people and educa education, has been a little bit disrupted. Um, so we do obviously play to the Instagram market and it's very important to have good assets but we need to make sure that there's a, a reason and a story behind that drink we're not just going to take a picture of something pink and put it on there and hope that it sells because mm. the people that are really engaged or excited by that are probably not the people that we're trying to target so that fundamentally authenticity is key then it needs to have a genuine history it needs to have a genuine story yeah. and, it, and for me that's the same you know, if I was ranting about, you know, the way that the, the food industry's gone, I suppose. And, and you could talk about food just in even in what we eat at home with how much processed food there is now and how many ingredients are in that processed food and trying to get back to whole foods. It, it's an incredible frustration 
So how, you know, I guess, you know, I think the key is you've got to keep banging that same drum. What social media does is seem to have this incredible ability to change the landscape really, really fast, doesn't it? All of a sudden things are, like you say, they're fads, they're in and they're gone uh, in in a season in no time. It's the same in restaurants. New restaurant opens, everybody disappears from the old restaurant because they've seen it on Instagram and they go and follow the new one. So how do you get that message out then? And I appreciate this is this is probably the key question and the challenge, but how, how do you bypass the noise and just make sure that you cut through with that authentic story on a consistent basis. Are you playing the long game? or? I mean, it is definitely playing the long game, yeah. I mean, what's happened with all the crowding of the markets, it's become more and more difficult to actually get in front of our customers, which ultimately are the bartenders. Um, and I kind of looked at the space that we were fighting in and realised that there was quite a lot of noise. And the last couple of years, I thought, right, OK, we're not going to jump onto this noise. It's not authentic to us. What we need to do is we really need to dig deep. We need to think about our, our values, what we want to do in the long term and how we want to continue to impact this industry. Um, and that's where I um, started thinking about developing some ways for us to talk to the on-trade that wasn't necessarily just about fighting over the loud noise with products because we have a great portfolio of products. We just need to kind of get in front of the bartenders and it's just been so crowded. Um, So that's when I decided to kind of look at other things that were really important to us as an organisation, as a business, and try and connect with our customers on a different level. So there's a couple of things that we've done internally. We did our investors in people, accreditation, which just, it kind of just makes you really kind of serious about what you're doing with the development of the people in your organisation. So people that come to work for Love Drinks know that they're going to have a a good career. We're going to look after them really well. And the second thing was really embracing something that we kind of naturally all love, which is health and fitness. And sometimes health and fitness and drinking don't go arm in arm, certainly. But it's, it's always been something that we've been known for. We, as an organisation, as a team of, of friends here, we, we've done Tough Mudders, we've done marathons, we've done fitness festivals. And we were spending like, you know, instead of going to the pub and having our meetings there, we were kind of sweating together. We were like, hang on a minute, other companies, small companies like, like us, um, you know, bars and restaurants, they also want to bond and, you know, support their team. Um, so let's see if it's something that we can do to help shout through this really kind of crowded market of, you know, pink Instagram martinis and really connect with bartenders on that level. And it's, it's worked. It's really worked. So, you know, we're kind of trying to get meetings with them, then we're talking to them about our our values, our culture, our people, and that resets the tone so they really understand that Love Drinks is all about quality, authenticity, and people. And then we get the portfolio out and they're having a conversation about, you know, the thing that we obviously want to be promoting and selling. Um, but you've got to be really, really creative in, in this environment. And, you know, there's many, many different ways to skin a cat or make a cocktail. Um, and we've really had to kind of go around the houses, but do it in a way that's really authentic to mm, us. Nice. So how many, I mean, is there an ideal number of brands that you represent then? We've got 10 brands in our portfolio. Um, and none of them step on anybody else's toes. We've got a couple of gaps that we're missing. Vodka, but oh my God, it's just so dull. I can say really? that. Fuck us still. So you'd rather not sell it than yeah. uh, than sell something? Yeah, it would take something pretty special to get us excited. We're kind of missing anything in agave. And oh, we haven't got any whiskies either. But um, 
I mean, my, I guess my personal strength is, is gins and runs. I always navigate towards them. And I guess as I've stepped away, unfortunately, from the coalface in terms of selling, it does become a little bit more challenging in terms of what's the next big thing. But actually, there's so many other brands out there. Um, so we would, we would like to get a couple more brands in the portfolio. So we're definitely looking at the whiskey space. We're also keen to look at some more British brands. Um, and also, the British consumer have gone really like British loyal. So we have... Um, two brands in our portfolio, Brighton Gin and Cavinson's, which are both from the UK. Uh, but it's only about 10% of our portfolio in terms of turnover. So we want to find an, probably another British product, but not just for the sake of getting a British product, because the fact is we want to find the best products that the world has got to offer and bring them to this market, and that's what we do. Again, you, you touched on this earlier, but um, alongside drinks distribution, the health and fitness and well-being has become increasingly important to you. And that's yeah, like you say, unusual, I suppose, in, in the drinks trade, certainly historically where yeah. it was all about getting people to drink as much as possible. Um, how have you, you managed that kind of contradiction and, and what was the specific motivation that got you into, into the health and fitness side? I mean, when I was working at Budweiser, I, I've always been into health and fitness from being very young, had a really kind of great childhood, being outside quite a lot. Um, and I used to love sports day and win everything and then through university um, you know really kind of got into going to the gym but then when I went to work for Budweiser my life was turned upside down I was working a lot of evenings and weekends and I was driving a lot so it's not like I was drinking a huge amount Um, and I was just the environment that I was working in um, it was quite exciting and I started to have these awful panic attacks. So I'd be going to do an event, lots of adrenaline pumping around my body, getting in the car to drive home at one, two o'clock, you know, in the morning. And I was like, oh my God, I just feel awful. And I don't know if you've ever had a panic attack, but it's really, really not that pleasant. I was only about 21, 22. Oh. I just didn't know what was happening to me. Um, it took quite a while to get kind of diagnosed, but because I'd always done a lot of sport, I had quite an overactive adrenaline gland, so I get excited really easily. Um, and if I wasn't physically burning it off. Um, and that's when I realised that the only way that I can have a healthy um, lifestyle is to keep exercising. So I've just been absolutely religious with exercise. Um, it's really cool these days to Instagram your trainers and, you know, at five o'clock in the morning, it's like a competition, isn't it? But, you know, 15 years ago, it wasn't cool. Um, and when I was working at Allied de Mac, we were doing late nights, we were dining, drinking, and I'd be literally sneaking out of the hotel the next morning at five o'clock, horrifically hungover, probably still drunk, put my trainers on to run. To, that was the only way that I could kind of get through the next day. So exercise has been like kind of this dirty secret. And then I was like, hang on a minute, it's good for you. It should be good for everybody. But I never wanted to kind of push my you know, desires or enjoyments onto other people. But I'm thinking, hang on a minute, the basics of life is good food and exercise. So I've learned over the last few years to have a bit more confidence um, being a leader in a business and just say, there's nothing wrong with encouraging your team to exercise. It doesn't mean to say I want them all to run marathons. It's for people to do, you know, if, even if it's just some gentle stretching, They've got a hula hoop in the in the toilet. We can have a go. <laughs> the toilet. <laughs> Do you bring it out to use it, or are you only allowed to use it in the toilet? Hula, yeah, we, yeah. No, you, it's a big loop. Use it anywhere, okay. anywhere. Yeah. 
Um, we have a masseuse that comes in once a month. You know, we make sure we've always got kind of lots of healthy food. Um, and we, you know, we use exercise as a way to kind of bond as a team as well. Um, and having the, the love well keeps me accountable to the team to make sure that we're always, you know, thinking about healthy ways to, um, you know, have meetings um, instead of just going to bars and restaurants and drinking cocktails, which... What's Love Well? Love Well is a platform. So we've got a, a page on our website as well. So Love Well is an initiative. Uh, we um, did it originally with Healthy Hospo, which is a charity for want of a better word. Um, they're great, Tim from Healthy Hospo. He's very much kind of championing the, the health and well-being of the industry. So we do talks together. Um, so once every month or once, once a quarter, um, we do a talk together and he'll be talking about the benefits of sleep and eating and exercise. Um, there's another lovely lady, Melinda Cameling, is actually the wife of Cameron Sons and she does a, an Invest in Rest seminar. So we pay for that and we invite bartenders to come and go through this two hour seminar that helps them, you know, relax and revive and look after themselves basically. Um, and then we do a once a month workout um, on the common. We have a guy, Steve from My Body, that comes with his van that's got his gym apparatus hanging up it. And we exercise with our team and also we invite our customers as well. So those that train together stay together. Nice. Yeah. Is it, uh, what's the uptake? Is it popular? Um, yeah, I mean, bartenders can be. I was going to say, you're, 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 you're in a tough industry to promote that, aren't you? Because they're generally up nights, sort of, you know, yeah, drinking yeah. cocktails until the early hours. Absolutely. So I think it's very important. But yeah. yeah, do they agree? We never give up. We're very persistent. Um, so the turnout, you know, sometimes we'll have like two or three bartenders, sometimes it's like five or six. Um, we don't ever want it to be a, a kind of a massive, um, a massive group. Um, but it's, it's a good way to kind of promote what we're doing on social media as well. So we're certainly kind of shouting about it and Kind of people are thinking, oh, maybe I should go and exercise. So um, we're hoping it's going to get a little bit more popular. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have to keep changing the times around to uh, to meet the uh, yeah the bartenders' uh, needs. So. Yeah. It is such a, a fun point, same with chefs, I think, you know, as well as the bartenders, you know, they work in these hot windowless boxes, huge amounts of adrenaline pumping through their systems, yeah. and the natural release at the end of service to calm down on a Saturday night is, is, is a few beers, and uh, yeah, smoking whatever they're smoking, and, and then they're back in early the next day, and it's, uh, yeah, it's a challenge for the sector, I think, same yeah. as mental health, which has come up a yeah. lot. Uh, recently, we have somebody down uh, in our town, uh, Chris Hall, who's la launched a sort of Burnt Chef initiative all around mental, mental health and well-being, which yeah. uh, I need to speak to him about in detail. But that's another story. But yeah, um, certainly more recognition, but but a huge challenge for the sector, I think, as yeah. well as as well as the general public. I suppose. Yeah, there's a lot of people that are uh, kind of out there aware of it and trying to do things, and that's it. We're just we're trying to do our best. We're not experts in it. We're not pretending we're experts in fitness or anything else. We get the experts to come in and, and talk about it. And, you know, we obviously pay for that expertise. But just going to try and do something that you feel is the right thing for the industry. Mm. Yeah, it comes back to that authenticity. So uh, your role's clearly changed hugely then. You're no longer on the cold face. You're, you're actually doing the, the direct selling. Um, what are you doing now? Is it more the sort of mentoring, coaching side of your team? And how many people do you employ? Um, so I still do make sure I am 
a little bit on the coal face because um, that's what I really enjoy. So doing a little bit more coaching with the team, going out to key meetings. I still look after some of the key retailers. So Waitrose is a super, super important account for us. They really, really share our values. Um, Sam, who joined as MD a couple of years ago, she's very good with the kind of managing day-to-day of the team. I'm not very good at holding people to account. I like to inspire um, and, you know, really look at the vision for the future. So I guess my role is a lot more strategic. Um, I'm kind of thinking about getting rid of the CEO um, title and it being founder and chief happiness officer, because ultimately that's all I'm trying to do is I did find the, found the business. Found? Fine. always makes me laugh. Found it. Found it. It was bloody hard graph, wasn't <laughs> it? Wow. Yeah, I certainly didn't find it. Yeah, you built it. Should be builder. <laughs> I tripped over it, actually, yeah. I think is what happened. Um, and ultimately now it's just, it's, it's keeping the happiness in the workplace, with, whether it's with the team or with the brand owners. So, um, and kind of just trying to keep one step ahead of what everybody else is doing. How do I make sure that we're relevant? Um, keeping the portfolio relevant, you know, in terms of consumer trends, brand loyalty has gone down. So I'm kind of looking, how do we um, appeal to our consumers without packing our portfolio full of products? So pushing back to the brand owners and saying, look, it's about innovation of products. Um, you don't have to make a spice drum. Let's look at some gift packing. Um, let's look at some, you know, slightly different sizes. Let's look at a ready-to-drink dark and stormy in a can that's gone into Waitrose, now available to buy. Um, so, so it's pushing, pushing the brand owners to meet the demands of the UK market now. So that's kind of the general piece that I do. So with all of that, with everything you now do, with all of your experience, which part of your job now gives you the most pleasure? I'm a people pleaser and I am a salesperson, so I still love delivering on the numbers. Um, but I'm also like really creative. Um, so starting up new initiatives for me really excites me, whether it's something, a new marketing campaign for one of the brands or whether it's, you know, we looking at our kind of company philosophy and values and developing um, a piece of communication to put out to our brand owners. Um, new really excites me which is is bad because that's why you're not md i've got a short I'm, attention span yeah, i'm the same shiny new toy syndrome always what's it next is. but it's about finding that having that creative vision and then it's not just about finding it and throwing it away it's having that drive to get it somewhere you want to see some results from that it's not about just having an idea and throwing it away it's about you know making an impact with that idea um so so I've got a little bit of longevity in that, you know, in that space. Um, but then if it gets to kind of putting the process behind it and holding people to account, I just I die a little bit inside. But recognising that, recognising what you're good at is is key. But actually, it's really difficult to bring in an MD of a company that you built, I think, fundamentally. How, how was that for you? Um, I mean, I've learned a lot about myself, more so in the last two years than ever before, really. But... Um, I've known Sam for about 15 years. We were, maybe as long as 20 years, we were rivals on the same patch in South London. We both worked for different portfolios and we had such a mutual respect for each other. And we've kind of danced around each other in the industry. And um, she's got a very similar energy to me, um, but in terms of skills um, and what drives us, very, very different. Um, and it's, she's just got the most amazing work ethic and attitude and we bond on that level. And um, sometimes if people are in a meeting with us, you know, we're just kind of reading each other's minds and talking so quickly to each other. Everybody thinks we're having an argument and we're just like so excited about something. Um, 
So it's been, yeah, it's lifted a huge weight off my shoulders and it's made me embrace my kind of failings and gone, do you know what, that's fine. I'm not great at that. I find it really difficult. And therefore other people must have witnessed that as well. It's not fair for me to continue doing that role if somebody else really thrives on, you know, setting KPIs and holding people to account. And, and she does, she really thrives on all of that. She's my integrator. Mm-hmm. I'm the visionary, she's my integrator. And it's really allowed us to kind of go off and, mm-hmm. and flourish, but I, I trust her with my life. Yeah. As a woman in business and as a successful female entrepreneur, I'm going to guess that a number of people come to you for uh, for business advice and, and ask you questions or get in touch. Is there any advice, and I, and I think, again, you alluded to this earlier with people who write business books who come from a very academic background, so or two things really. Is there any advice that you hear regularly or you've seen where you go, that's absolute nonsense, mm-hmm. that's from an academic, and is there any bit of advice where you go, that's a nugget, either that you give yourself or that you heard and you go, that's the best one, so... I think it's about finding the right advice. So, you know, about six years ago, I started looking for, you know, organisations, consultants that could help me. And I used to think, because I was paying them money, and they were older than me, uh, they'd have more experience. Um, And I've taken advice that was so wrong. It was so not right for my gut and my business. So it's just really explaining to people that nobody's going to come in and, and... work miracles in your business. It has to come from you. And just be really, really careful about the advice that you're asking and from who, on what is motivating them. And if you have got somebody at that senior level coming in, giving you advice, really understand why they're giving that advice and why it helped them. Because people, are, sometimes people are so keen to give you loads of advice. And it's just, it's coming from the wrong place. Um, and yeah, I've taken a lot of the wrong advice and really, really kicked myself. That you've paid for as well by the sounds of it sometimes yeah, <laughs> yeah yeah and that's really kind of shaken the foundations and given me kind of wrong expectations of the future and on that wrong expectations uh, for the future i think the most important thing is to just let go of things that have gone on in the past it took me a long long time to realize that that mistakes that i've made um, you know, people that I felt had maybe not done the right things. I was clinging on to this. Um, and also trends and how the market worked 10 years ago. It's different. The world is changing. S- just stop looking back. I always look forwards. Take a deep breath. You know, you're thinking too much. Stop thinking. It's gone. It's in the past. And just focus on what you can actually now change because... There's so many people that cling on to stuff in the past and it just drags them down, holds them back. It's true. So on that note then, you're looking into the future. I don't know how far away in the future you're looking, but what's 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 coming up for Love Drinks then and Kirsty in the next few years? I mean, I've been doing this for 13 years. It's, you know, my heart and soul. I'm not going anywhere. But I've also realised that I want to kind of release the inner entrepreneur in me. So I'm kind of looking at some other sideline businesses Um one is potentially linked to the uh, the drinks industry. It's not really that sexy. It's, it's, it's a platform. It's a kind of an IT-based business. Um, and I'd love to do something with a charity. I'd love to create maybe a, um, an athleisure brand um, that had kind of like a good um, give back ethos. You know, I love what Tom's Shoes did. Um, I'd love to do something like that in the leisure industry um giving back money to a particular demographic probably women 
um, you know, trying to get women to benefit from group exercise, the benefits of group exercise, getting out of your head, working out, connecting with, you know, people. They don't even need to be like-minded people, connecting with different people. Um, so I often say that I should run a charity. That's what Love Drinks feels like all the time, yeah. being a charity. Running business often feels like that. It, it depends does. on the bottom line, doesn't it? But, uh, yeah. So it's really important that I allow myself to kind of do other things that, you know, make me feel really good about myself and contribute back to society yeah good exciting continuing life's journey and adventure um so people who want to follow you or follow the drinks you've got these incredible stories behind these brands where's the best place to go and learn the stories and where's the best place to sort of follow the day-to-day life of Kirsty or love drinks it's on the website you can sign up to our kind of newsletter um facebook we do quite a lot instagram um so yeah it's all on the website lovedrinks.com the live well platforms on there as well um so but i think facebook we probably do the most with i think it's our demographic it's probably because i use it the most i'm not very good on instagram i've got a few pictures of my dogs on instagram and um, but i feel that you can tell the story a little bit more with um, with facebook as well amazing yeah. Well, look, thanks for bringing these brands to light because, uh, yeah, I, you know, I've learned a lot and I'm, I'm interviewing some of your, uh, the people that you represent as well who've got fascinating stories, which has been really exciting. So, yeah, thanks for what you do, you know, doing what you do and making the world of drinks more interesting and making sure that we don't all die of boredom drinking the same boring brands nationally. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, thanks for sparing the time to chat to me as well. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Cheers. So there you have it. You have reached the end of another episode of the Humans of Hospitality podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please go and visit our website, humansofhospitality.co.uk for the show notes and extra episodes and information. And whilst you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter and to receive free materials all about the humans behind our incredible industry. Lastly, if you could subscribe, rate and review this podcast, you will be massively helping me out and it would be hugely appreciated. Thank you so much. We'll be launching another podcast in just seven days time. Cheers. Cheers.